I'm going to read God's word beginning in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. This now, beloved, this is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray one more time and ask him to give us understanding. God, we pause as a matter of routine. We understand we don't have to. There's nothing that says we have to, except that we want to acknowledge before I preach and we listen together to your word that this is your Bible. We don't own it. It's yours. And our minds are so liable to be confused, so susceptible to the lies of this world and of our enemy, that we humbly plead that you, by your Spirit who gave these scriptures, would open up our minds to understand, not that there's any secret hidden meaning. It's not mystical. It doesn't need to be divined. Your word is clear. It is plain. It is It is perspicuous. It is beautiful, understood. Here we are thousands of years after it was written, and we find it to be so, so understandable by and large. And yet we pray that you would bring your word to meet upon our lives, that we might live in a way that's honoring to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we study God's word, one of the first principles of rightly interpreting God's word is context. And uh, context, context, context is most important. You need to know that. Don't ever just read one verse and think that you can understand its significance by taking that one verse out of its context. You wouldn't want someone to do that with a letter or a card that you wrote. Um, how many of us know the experience of texting someone something and we texted it and it was out of context and we thought afterwards, oh no, I don't know how they understood the context, what I meant by that. And so the context of these first two verses, I want to be plain and clear, is that Peter is fighting against false teachers who are infiltrating the church. And in particular, we're going to see in verse 3 of chapter 3, They are playing down, they are belittling, even mocking the biblical teaching on the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where is the promise of his saying, of of his coming, they are saying in verse 4. Where is the promise of his coming? And so Peter is urging these believers to not forget the pivotal, central doctrine of the second coming of Christ. And we'll look more at that, God willing, in the weeks ahead. But this morning, I want to slow down and I want you to see what Peter rests his case upon, what he's calling the believers to, and it is upon the nature of the Word of God. I've never preached 2 Peter before, and one of the uh, truths that has surprised me, it's, it's been there all along, is how strong 2 Peter is as a book in the Bible teaching us a doctrine of Scripture. 
I've known, uh, and along with 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 are, are important verses to instruct us about the doctrine of inspiration, that God breathed out the scriptures, that no prophecy, as Peter says in chapter 1, verse 21, was ever made by an act of human will. This wasn't mere men sitting around or standing being inspired by something they were looking at. Peter says they literally were moved or carried along by the very Spirit of God. And so that verse is is very clear. But I've, I've been a little surprised at the other clear references to the doctrine of Scripture. And this morning I want to slow down in verses 1 and 2 because I think here we find another very strong teaching on the nature of the Bible, God's Word. And so that is our focus this morning. But I want to uh, just begin by, by just walking you through these two precious verses. And these past few weeks have been difficult. If you've come on Sunday mornings, uh, they've been a little bit fiery because the text is fiery. As I said, one commentator Uh, refers to Peter's writings in chapter 2 in particular as a rhetorical fury. And it is some of the strongest language that Peter could possibly muster. Look at it. Again, we looked at phrases like he describes the false teachers as accursed children. Imagine, Imagine, again, a pastor in these days in this culture actually referring to a false teacher that way. <laughs> Somebody would say, wow, he's really got, he's got a problem. Uh, he's got an anger issue. Peter doesn't have an anger issue, and you don't want to say that the Holy Spirit has an anger issue. He is angry with a holy anger against all who would pervert his word and then corrupt it in such a way that sincere believers in Jesus Christ are led astray. So it's, it's been a challenging experience for all of us. I feel, have felt a bit raw in my soul as we think about the, the tragedy and the horror of taking God's holy, life-giving gospel, his word, and the idea of it being perverted and twisted. And it grieves us, and it breaks our hearts, and it should, and we should be disturbed But I want you to notice in chapter 3, verse 1, that Peter's heart in writing all of this, which of course is not just Peter's heart, this is the heart of your Lord. This is ultimately the author, is the spirit of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the spirit of your Father in heaven. And you who are sincere believers are, do you notice verse 1, beloved. Beloved. You are beloved. And, and... This is not out of keeping with what Peter has written before. Much of the fury, which I think is an appropriate word, that has been directed at false pastor teachers in chapter 1 and chapter 2 by the Holy Spirit, that fury, part of what stokes the fire, is his love for his sheep, is Christ's love for his sheep. The Spirit's love for Christ's people. He loves his people. He jealously guards and protects his people. He is not open to having an academic discussion on the finer points of new theology. 
He has given his theology. He has given his word. He has given his gospel once for all, delivered it to his saints. He has overseen, that is, the Holy Spirit has overseen not only its, its being written down, its inscripturation, he's seen its preservation. And he knows that it is by this word that his people stand or fall. And so his fury is an expression, in part, of his love for you. His love for you. He is not okay. The Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus Christ, and certainly the Heavenly Father, is not okay with anyone doing anything to keep you from his life-giving gospel, his word. And so you are beloved. And so I know sometimes when you sit under the, or you read, or you hear read, or you hear the teaching of some sections of warning If you are a true believer in Jesus Christ, you're like a little lamb and you feel like some of your wool is getting singed and you wonder, oh boy, you know, this isn't very encouraging. I'm scared. I'm not sure I like this. Oh, dear little lamb, you're fine. You're okay. You're safe in Jesus. And do you see that your safety is in part your Lord's passion for you? He's not okay with false teaching. As I said several weeks ago, I don't, I'm not ashamed to say that part of the way I teach and I preach is motivated. I mean, I said to Krista this morning, I, I, I just I love this. This is hard what I do, but I love it. But I, I love it. That's a motive. But I will tell you that part of my motive is I'm scared. I'm scared. Because I absolutely know that I have an appointment. And one day I'm going to stand before your shepherd, your chief shepherd. And I will give an account to you and to all those who happen to be under the teaching or the preaching that I, I ministered. I will give an account. That scares me. So I, I stick pretty close to the word, partly not only for your good, but for my own self-preservation. Not that I think that I would uh, lose my salvation or something like that, but Paul says that each man's work, in, in 1 Corinthians, he says each man's work, as is 2 Corinthians, each man's work will be examined. And for many pastors, uh, their, some of their sermons are going to burn up because they were, they were off base. You are beloved. You are beloved. You are beloved and you are sincere. I want you to just notice that word there. Paul, Paul, Peter describes these believers as having a sincere mind. They may have been confused by these false teachers. As of this moment, they may be a bit disoriented because they know some of these false teachers. They're nice guys. Their words seem persuasive and now Peter's writing a letter that's shaking these believers up and they're wondering you know maybe maybe could could he could that pastor that I've been listening to trying to trying to discern and they're suddenly realizing uh wow I I may have been sitting under some false teaching I I will say I'm going to come back to the word sincere but before I forget it 
Uh, Dear lambs, I am so thankful with you for the technology in our day and age. I am so thankful for online sermons. I have benefited immensely in the past 20 years or more from, from faithful, godly, gifted preachers that I have listened to online. But one of the reasons why Christ gave you a local shepherd is to help you navigate. And I'm not saying that you text me every single time, (laughs) Pastor Gabe, is this guy okay to listen to? But I, I seriously mean this. In love of Christ, in honor of the way he's designed his church, least give those who watch over your souls a little bit of opportunity input i sometimes hear uh, not not recently but you know just boy someone's really listening to so and so sermons and and maybe they're good but maybe they're not and part of my job and the job of every faithful pastor is and why reason why you so graciously provide for this to be my work is that i devote myself to the study of the scriptures Part of my shepherding is to be aware of some of the trends and some of the concerns. I mean, some of you have never heard of N.T. Wright or New Perspective on Paul and different avenues, and and, um, that's my job. That's my job. And, you know, we're not saying only listen to what happens here. Of course not. Again, there's, um, I've heard with you, I've been so impacted by men like John MacArthur and John Piper and Derek Thomas and Sinclair Ferguson, and I listen to some local pastors from time to time that I greatly appreciate, but be careful. So with that little aside, notice the value of sincerity. I am stirring up your sincere mind. What does God want? What does Christ want of his people? Sincerity. I just want you to see how that value is uplifted, is lifted up in scripture. These are beloved. You are beloved. These are sincere believers. You, I trust, most of you here this morning are sincere believers. And Peter then says that these believers, and by extension we, need then to think and act carefully. We need to think and act carefully. Now that sounds very basic, but we live in a culture right now, again with our technology and our um, consumer system, where actually we are becoming more and more accustomed to not proactively thinking. Somebody else does the work for us, and then we use their thinking as a product, and we just kind of go along. And Peter is saying, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Stirring up. They have to do something. They have to think, and they have to remember. Verse 1, Peter is reminding them, verse 2, so that they should remember. So he's stirring them up. They need to think more carefully. They need to act more carefully in terms of what teaching they follow. And what is most urgent? What is most pressing? What are Christ's sheep and the little lambs to do in the face of such evil and onslaught of false teachers? Verse 2, remember the words. Remember the words. Remember the words. The words which are 
the commandment of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this is the main thing to these beloved, sincere believers as Peter is seeking to stir them up. He's bringing them back to the Bible, back to the Bible, back to the scriptures. He says, remember the words spoken beforehand. By this, he's not referring to some kind of oral tradition. Notice the emphasis on writing. Even Peter is writing the letter back over in chapter 1, verse 20. Uh, Peter refers to the prophecy of scripture. Script is at the base of that word scripture, right? So what Peter is talking about, remember the words spoken beforehand. He's talking about the words spoken beforehand by the prophets that were then under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, actually written down and now are what we call the Holy Scriptures, the Scripture, the Bible, the writing, the writings. We are to remember these words. Peter does not, again, mean some lost oral tradition. He means the Bible, the Scriptures. Peter is calling these believers... And the, script, the Spirit is calling us back to the Bible. Do we need to hear this call? Yes, we do. Again and again and again. It's not our natural tendency. Our natural tendency is away from the Word. How often do we know this when we have seasons when we are reading maybe our Bible? If we're able to read, we're reading our Bible rather regularly. And then a week goes by, a couple of weeks, and maybe a month goes by when we really our reading has been nothing much more than just, you know, reading a few lines before we're off running to work. We need the call back to the Bible. And not just in our personal lives, but in the church. This call to remembrance is is not a new theme in this little letter. Peter had said, again, to those verses in chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, he had said, I'm sorry, at the close of chapter 2, no, chapter 1. My notes are a little confused here. See, my notes may be confused. Thankfully, this book is not confusing. (laughs) He says that verse 19 of chapter 1, Concerning the prophetic word, it is a word which is more sure. In other words, it's more certain than even a first-hand experience like Peter had of the transfiguration. This is this certain word, and we do well to pay attention to it as a lamp shining in a dark place. So over in chapter 3, this call to remember, to get back to the word, is not a new theme. This is Peter's overarching pastoral concern is that in the face of an onslaught of new, tantalizing teaching, taking maybe portions of Scripture here and there, offering it up as a a delicacy that kind of pleases your, your, your natural flesh, he's saying, no, 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 a thousand times no. Get back to the Bible. And what part of the Bible, we might ask? This is where I want to spend the rest of our time this morning. I really wanted to focus this morning on the unity of scripture because it is taught here and in the previous verses in a remarkable way the unity of scripture 
one of the perennial tactics of false teachers and, you know, sometimes just plain bad pastor teachers. I mean, they just, they're just lazy or they're just, they're careless with the word and they don't set out to be a false teacher, but effectively by not teaching the whole counsel of God's word accurately, they become misleading teachers. So what is Peter talking about when he says, remember the words? Well, look with me at verse 2. He gives a few qualifying phrases. They were spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. It seems most likely there that Peter is referring to what we often call the Old Testament. Um, And be careful with that phrase. Remember, the Bible doesn't call it the Old Testament. That's a modern, we, we call it that. I'm not sure God's very good with that phrase, by the way, the Old Testament, because in our culture, we tend to think if it's old, it needs to be tossed out, and the new is what we want. Uh, Just remember, it is all God's word, and in fact, if you have a Bible with a page, a blank page between Malachi and Matthew, remember, that blank page is not inspired. It's all God's word, and Jesus was adamant in the Sermon on the Mount, remember? Not one of these words will pass away. Every little stroke of the Old Testament is as inspired, authoritative as the new. It is all one word. So he's referring, yes, to the Old Testament scriptures, the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior by your apostles. I just want you to notice that that sums up the entirety of the Bible. The New Testament, what we call the New Testament, is composed by the apostles or their close associates, or it has the clear mark of apostolic preaching and teaching on it. This is pretty much the Bible. This is the the holy prophets spoken beforehand and the New Testament, the words of the apostles. And as I said, one of the perennial tactics of false teachers is to somehow break down the unity of Scripture. There's multiple ways they can do this. They don't come out and say it, of course, that directly. But there is, a, there is a, an erosion in the practical ministry of a church of belief and practice of the unity of Scripture. They do this several ways. One of the ways they do this is by pitting, trying to pit various authors against one another. Moses said, or James said, but Paul said. Jesus said, but Paul said. That's one of the most classic ones. You you even have um, out there a group of supposedly Christians who are saying they are red-letter Christians, meaning they value the words that come out of the mouth of Jesus, and they value them over and against the words of Paul, because they think that what Paul wrote, particularly some things he had to say about male leadership in the church and so forth, and some of the things he's had to say about homosexuality, they're red-letter Christians because Jesus was was uh, nice. Paul was sometimes mean, which is really, even there is a very shallow reading because we went through the gospel of Matthew and Jesus is not always nice. So this is one of the tactics is to kind of tear at the Bible, not literally 
but to, to pull it apart. This morning at home, um, I had a, one of the Bibles I have. Uh, maybe some of you have you know, multiple Bibles. And uh, this is one I received, oh, I don't know, 15 years ago. It was a nice Bible given to me, a little one. had this really beautiful brown calfskin leather. And when I first had it, it smelled so nice and just a nice size. And I was really looking forward to using it. And, uh, and uh, it was, we were over at my parents and I left it up on the countertop and uh, they had two dogs. I have two dogs. This one I think is still living. And <laughs> this one particular dog um, smelled that leather, got up on the counter and uh, that Bible, some of the pages, interestingly enough, right in Second Peter, <laughs> are torn. So I, in order to read the bottom part of Second Peter, I actually have to take the, the Bible because I got it all kind of mangled by her teeth. Thankfully, it wasn't devoured. The Bible wasn't ruined completely. But I have to take the little page and I have to kind of put it back, pull it down so it's flat a little bit. And so I can, oh, that's what it says. And that's what false teachers do. They, they tear at the unity and the authority of Scripture little by little. Some, of, some teachers are doing this with Paul's words. Even in Second Peter, look in chapter 3. We'll look at this, God willing, again in a few weeks. But at the, even at the close of Second Peter, verse 15 of chapter 3, Peter will say, regard the patience of our Lord and Savior as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which some things are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. So there's a reference of that reality right there. This is not an innocent mistake. These are men, in some cases women, presuming to be teachers of the word of God. And they are distorting Paul's writings. And here is Peter affirming that Paul's words are scripture. Notice verse 16, as they do with the rest of scripture. Meaning, Paul's letters that we have recorded in the New Testament are testified by Peter, the lead apostle, as Holy Scripture. And this is, continues to happen in our day. The false teachers especially have fun with Paul. They, they somehow uh, make him say all kinds of things. So this is one of the tactics, is to tear, is to set various authors, human authors of Scripture, against one another. They also do this by neglecting the Old Testament. This is, I'm thinking of our day in particular. Neglecting the Old Testament. What I'm, what, you know, again, um, Walter Kaiser, who's a, a biblical theologian, Old Testament scholar that I deeply admire, I think he calls it the First Testament. <laughs> he refuses to call it the Old Testament. The First Testament, or the Old Testament, is largely neglected in favor of what is more recent or new, as if God's word was divided. Just a few years ago, in 2018, Andy Stanley, who's pastor of one of the largest evangelical, supposedly, churches in, in the United States, 
uh, is well known for infamously saying that Christians need to unhitch their faith from the Old Testament. That's a quote. We need to unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. And a lot of what he doesn't like is because what's found there about homosexuality and sin and so forth. And so there's an open, by the way, that's heresy. So yes, Andy Stanley is in the category of a heretical pastor teacher. That's self-derived. That idea saying we need to unhitch the Old Testament, that didn't come from the New Testament. But more commonly, the Old Testament or the First Testament is just neglected. Most won't come out right and say we need to unhitch. That's an extreme example. But mostly, primarily, what Peter says, the words spoken beforehand by the Holy Prophets, verse 2. So this is what we're being called to remember. More commonly in our time, those words spoken beforehand by the Holy Prophets are just neglected. They're not publicly read in Scripture. There are not pastors who are studying the First Testament Scriptures. If they do, they maybe focus on a psalm here or there, maybe a proverb, or as most recently, the largest evangelical church in New Hampshire did an Old Testament series in which it was called, and I'm not kidding, Bedtime Stories. So in other words, you got to admit, in the Old Testament, there's some pretty interesting stuff that goes on. And so at the very least, these purportedly evangelical preachers dip into the Old Testament to get some new material. But there is absolutely zero intent to actually read and teach the Word of God in the First Testament, the Old Testament, as delivered by God. This is not new. False teacher in the early church called Origen, he, he couldn't stand the Old Testament. He didn't like the book of James uh, because it smacked of the Old Testament. But notice what Peter says. I'm, and I'm, 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 I'm taking my finger... And I'm pointing it on chapter 3, verse 2. By the authority of the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, under the moving of the Spirit, we are to remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. If we leave off of our Old Testament, we are departing from the faith once for all delivered to the saints that serious which is one of the reasons why we have an evening worship service i've shared this with you before but it's not because there is a thou shalt have an evening worship service one of the driving forces behind another service with a separate preaching is this principle and i've said this before but i understand on the basis of this verse and paul's words to timothy preach the word his phrase, all scripture, that I am duty-bound to try and attempt to read and to teach to you this entire book. I don't know if I'm going to finish by the time I die, but at least that's my effort. That's my intent. And it's not like some marathon. It's driven by a conviction about the nature of this word. I, I, uh, Maybe you've seen uh, 
some folks who go to the gym a lot, and that's good. I, I could stand to go to the gym, maybe. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, you see these guys who are into lifting weights, and, uh, you know, every once in a while, you know, they, they, most, they, they seem to lift weights, and they know to do proportionately. But every once in a while, you've been walking along, and you see some guy who just really obviously just worked on his arms. He's skinny as a rail. I mean, has no muscles in his legs. Uh, you know, he's, he's, even his shoulders maybe aren't even that big. But boy, does he have these biceps. And he wants everybody to see them. And he just looks malformed, misshapen. Or imagine that some guy went to the gym and only worked his right side. Only worked his right leg. Only worked his right arm. Only worked his... I mean, he'd be walking around like, like this, like this massive... He'd be like, wow, that's a really... Oh, that, okay, that's interesting. A church or group of believers that only devotes themselves to a portion of the Bible, whether it be old or new, is as misshapen and terribly more so than that kind of illustration. You've heard the phrase, it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. The Puritans and those we, we appreciate from the past were men and women, and not just the preachers, the, the laity, if you want to call it that, the people in the pews or the chairs. They, they worked at understanding their Old Testament, and it's not easy, understandably. It's challenging. We're preaching in Hosea these days in the evening service, and I'm finding it challenging. But we neglect it to our peril. So, remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. The next phrase in the original Greek, the words spoken beforehand, is, it reads, by the prophets, the next phrase is actually, and by your apostles. Interesting. So, th- there's some commentators and, and those who know the Greek language experts, they, they say it's, it's interesting that the commandment of the Lord Jesus, of the Lord, of the Lord and Savior, what uh, noun or phrase that actually qualifies is, is actually, it's interesting, it's a little unclear. We'll get back to that in a moment. But here is a clear affirmation that the writings of the apostles in the New Testament is as much Holy Scripture as the word given by Moses and Samuel and Isaiah and so forth. And we dare not, for example, cut up the New Testament. Maybe we don't like some of the things that James says about needing to work out our faith. That's not for us to decide. Maybe we find Revelation a little bit confusing at sections and we think well I don't know if I really need to know that we dare not do that it was written by the apostle John they are our apostles we listen to them and we listen to the prophets of the old testament scriptures and if any modern day teacher in front of us does not speak according to this word we do not listen Because we are not to look for something new. We are to remember the words spoken beforehand. And it may be, see that phrase, the commandment of our Lord and Savior in verse 2? It may be, and 
most commentators seem to think this, that the commandment of our Lord and Savior is qualifying or explaining something to do with the apostles. In other words, the apostles were given this commandment by the Lord, and that's what we have in the New Testament. And that certainly makes sense, and that certainly is in keeping. Even in Acts chapter 1, we learn that Jesus, after his resurrection, met with his apostles, gave them orders. We believe the New Testament, what we call the New Testament, the word given by the apostles and their close associates, are, in fact, the word of Christ, the command of Christ. But in the next few moments in closing this morning, I I really just want to meditate on one amazing truth. And it's here. It was in chapter 2. I don't know if... I I didn't have time last week to, to point it out to you. It's just... It has struck me, and I can't get it out of my heart and my mind. Go up to chapter 2, verse 21. Up there in Peter's railing against the false teachers, when he teaches that they will undergo a far more severe judgment. In other words, it would have been better for them if they had never been around the Bible, around Christ. As I said to you last week, no, this does not mean that they, you know, they're losing their salvation. They are not these false teachers that Peter's talking about. These are, are, true, are obviously not truly born again. Because earlier he described them as accursed children. And as I said to you, there is no born again child of God who ever could be described as accursed. So these are false converts. These are false professors. And yes, you say, they, you mean there can be false professors in the pulpit teaching? Yeah, absolutely. But so the warning is that it would have been better for them, verse 21, to not have known the way of righteousness. It's interesting. It's a singular there. This is where your, your grammar and some of you are getting a little scared. Oh, no, I'm back in English grammar class. Just... This, this is where grammar is helpful, and it's good, all right? It's singular, the way, not the ways, the way of righteousness. It would have been better. In other words, the gospel and the teaching of the scriptures is ultimately one way of righteousness. God doesn't have multiple ways of righteousness. You can't pit the Old Testament against the New. It is one singular way of righteousness. And in verse 21, it is described as the holy commandment handed on to them. Singular. That is fascinating. The holy commandment. So you scratch your head. You say, now which commandment is this? Which, where is this singular commandment that that was handed to them, it would have been better for them to have never known. I mean, which one is it? Is it love the Lord your God with all your heart? Is it repent and believe the gospel? What is the holy commandment? Do you see it? Singular? One? The holy commandment. Well, when you have a question like that, when, as I said to you at the beginning, if you want to know one sentence or one phrase, you have to first look at the immediate context. And what is the immediate context of that holy commandment? And it is, up in chapter 1, verse 20, Scripture. 
Scripture, both before and after that phrase, the holy commandment, Peter is talking about not one passing commandment in in Scripture. He's not talking about just the Old Testament or the New Testament. He refers to the entirety of the Bible as the holy commandment. Here it is. All of it. It is one, ultimately. It is singular. It is as God is. The Lord our God is one. You can't divide God up into parts or pieces. And neither can you do that with his word. It is, yes, within the Bible you find many words, plural, but it is ultimately so in agreement with itself that it is the word singular. Yes, within the Bible and in the New Testament in particular, for we who are living today, we have many particular commandments as to how we are to live, but those commandments are so in keeping with the character of God and in so in agreement with one another that they are one holy commandment. You cannot divide the scriptures. And that's what false teachers do. They, they, they turn the holy commandment and they try to cut it up. They do put, cut and paste. If a, listen, if a pastor or a teacher is purportedly teaching you the Bible, if he reads a verse or two and does not refer you to the context, that should be the last time you listen to that pastor or that teacher. Rare exception, I could think of that. But I'm talking about a regular week-by-week ministry of the word. If the pastor is not directing you to the words of the verse and then the context around it, you're being had. You're being sold. He has something that he read, something that's enamored in his heart. He has a strategy to lead the church away from the old gospel, the plain gospel of believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He, he, he thinks that's old-fashioned. He's going to use words, he's going to use phrases to tell you about your life and about your journey and about your experience and get excited for Jesus, but he's going to withhold from you your birthright by the Holy Spirit in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the entirety of the Holy Scriptures, the Holy Commandment. It's one word. That is, it's a, it has a unity to it. And I am not a Greek grammar expert. And I wish I had time uh, this week to have called someone who is. But I'm inclined, verse 2, to think that that word phrase, the commandment of the Lord and Savior, refers is a restatement of the words spoken beforehand. In other words, they are one. The word given by the prophets, the word given by the the apostles is in its entirety the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is true. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Wow. One of the amazing claims about Jesus is he claims that this entire book is his word along with the father and the spirit it is all his word it is one 
holy commandment. And even if that grammar is not correct there, if even if in verse 2, the commandment of the Lord is referring to that specific ministry of the apostles, which we have now in the New Testament, even if that is the case, up in chapter 2, verse 21, we have clear teaching that the entirety of Scripture is one unified holy commandment. The unity of the word of God. This is, uh, this is why we take so seriously every part of the word. This is why we can't laugh and chuckle at, well, you know, who can figure that out? Yes, in humility, we need to recognize some parts are more difficult maybe for us to understand than others. But we dare not suggest that God who is holy and who is one whose mind is perfect, whose communication is perfect, who gave these words by his prophets and, holy, and, and apostles carried along by the Holy Spirit, we dare not suggest that in some portions of this book he was a little weak or off. That's heresy. That's blasphemy. It's really serious. And yes, while there are portions of the word that are more clear and, and we cherish more, I mean, Romans 8, neither death nor life nor powers nor principalities, it's fine. The Lord knows, of course, that there are like, like, a, like a cut of, of, of a beautiful steak. There's portions that are, are a little more sweet and savory. The whole is, is sweet and savory, but there are some parts that are the choice parts. It's fine. If there's a favorite chapter of yours, of a favorite book, as long as you remember that your, your favorite passage or the verses is part of a rich treasure house of one unified revelation of the word and the will of God. Let's close by going to the end of the Bible. Revelation 22 This is uh, amazing. Amazing testimony by by Jesus himself to the unity of his word. Warning any who would detract from it or cut it up, piecemeal it. Jesus gave this word to the Apostle John. This is the last letter written in the New Testament that is not coincidental. The Holy Spirit led Paul to write, Luke to write, Peter to write, and so on. And he gave this word last of all, last of all, of all the New Testament letters, to John. And it is not coincidental that at the close of this one holy commandment. Jesus himself says, verse 18, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and the holy city which are written in this book. Wow. Not It is not coincidental that those are 
next to the last words of our risen Lord recorded in Holy Scripture. Don't add to my Bible. Don't take away from my Bible. May God grant that we remember his word. Uh, You're here for that reason. You want to be in a church that teaches the word. I understand that, but let's pray together that God will help us as together we continue to grow in understanding the entirety of this beautiful one holy commandment. Let's pray. God, we love you. We worship you. We acknowledge that you are one God. You're not divided. You're not a split personality. You've never had uh, said anything that you've ever regretted. You've never had to repent of a word. You've never had to edit. You are holy and utter perfection, and your word is as you are. And so we pray this morning that you would help us to heed your spirit's exhortation, your exhortation, that we would remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and our apostles, the commandment of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you'll get us into your Bibles and get your Bible into us. We pray that where maybe we have fallen off in our, our determination to study, when we meet with discomfort, we pray that we'll press through. When we meet with distraction, we pray that you'll help us to, to strive to, um, to make a way to, to read and study it without distraction. We pray that your word will have its place, utmost place, not only in our church, but in our homes. And so we ask this, oh God, that we may know you as you really are, that we may neglect no portion of your word, but love it all as one holy commandment. In your name we ask, amen.